These uh, early services in the summertime, uh, we have no idea whether anybody's going to be here or if we're going to have a good crowd, you know. Um, I had somebody ask me the other day, about how many people go to your church? And I'm like, well, it's summer, so we have no idea. <laughs> so <laughs> so uh, Kevin mentioned we're, we're still in First Peter chapter 1 today. Um, Peter wrote this letter very shortly before Caesar Nero was going to begin his war against Christianity. So uh, I know we just finished James, which was full of uh, information about trials, and Peter is going to be talking about some of the same things as well. Um, but he could, Peter could see the writing on the wall, right? He, he was trying to make sure that these young believers um, were prepared for what was to come. So we, you know, that's part of why we called the series Prepared, but this book really, it's about hope. Um, and it can feel hopeless sometimes when we're going through tough times, right? And maybe, uh, maybe you've had to stand at a hospital bed or, or even a grave lately, and that can make you feel hopeless. Or maybe uh, if you're like me, you feel hopeless when you step on the scale. You're like, come on! You know, uh, but it can feel hopeless when things are, seem out of control. When you know, when the economy is going sideways, when uh, it, th- it seems like everything is divisive. There's school shootings. There's new a new plague, monkeypox. Seriously, like for real, you know. Um, but you know, there's this old expression that we hear. Uh, every now and then, that the God on the mountain is, is still God in the valley, right? Uh, if, uh, if, you've, if you're not in the valley right now, or if maybe you've never been in the valley, then watch out, because it, it is coming. Um, but, you know, that space in between the mountaintops, between the, the highlight experiences in our lives, is where much of our life is spent is in, in the valley. And so how we prepare ourselves for those times when maybe, you know, maybe it's not a terrible thing, you're not going through a tough trial right now, but you're also kind of not on the mountaintop, not experiencing all the, the highlight reels of your life either. Um, how we're prepared for those times uh, is going to affect how we get through those times. So we're going to talk a little bit about that today, uh, but before we get into it, let's pray, and then we'll, we'll dive right in. Uh, Lord, we thank you again for giving us the opportunity to gather together in fellowship and worship, uh, that we get to uh, read and speak and hear about your, uh, your holy word. Lord, we just pray that uh, you would help us to, for one, be able to discern rightly, be able to uh, get what, is, uh, what the message is for us out of, out of this message, uh, but also, Lord, that we can be transformed by your word, that uh, we would have an open mind and an open heart and uh, not just learn some things, but that we would uh, be able to apply some things. And we would leave here today just a little bit closer to you than when we arrived. We pray for your will to be done through the message and in the lives of your people and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so First Peter 1, uh, like Kevin said, we're going to uh, just backtrack a little bit. Pastor Chris got uh, through, I think, what was it, seven verses last week. We're going to hit a few of those. 
uh, and then go on. So 1 Peter 1, verse 3. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again, to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Uh, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. That's quite the, the preamble, but the, the rest of this letter is, is working from a standard that he just set, that you... If you are a believer in Jesus, you already possess this great treasure, this inheritance. Uh, and, it's, and Peter wants you to know that that inheritance, that treasure is sure, right? It's not something that's questionable. It's not something that, like, you know, if you're like me, I, I'm not expecting uh, Social Security to be there, right, when I retire. Uh, it's, it's unsure, right? But this is something that is sure, that it will not fade away. Because everything in our life can be, almost everything can be consumed in a fire overnight. Uh, one doctor's appointment can change all of your plans. Yeah, we know, don't we? That's right, yeah. Uh, but he, he says, you, you have this inheritance that is sure, right? How do you get an inheritance? Somebody has to die, right? Somebody has to die for you to get that inheritance. And that is what we have. We have this, uh, this treasure that was, was provided through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And so our relationship with Christ is imperishable, he says. It never spoils. But he says you were born again to a living hope. You get... Uh, you get a do-over when it comes to your relationship with God, right? Instead of it being an adversarial one, you get to have a, uh, an intimate relationship with Him. Because the blood of Christ that removes our sin gives us the opportunity to, to have a new, deep relationship with, with our Creator. So I say all that because, uh, you know, Pastor Chris touched on this as well last week, that, you know, people throw around the term, uh, it's not about... It's not about religion, it's about a relationship. And that's one of those things that, you, you know, you can say, but what does that mean practically? How does that play out? And hopefully we'll understand that a little bit better through this book. Um, so anyway, so understanding that the treasure we've been given, uh, understanding that we have this great inheritance that will not fade away, will not go away, uh, that should elicit a response of some kind. So in verse 6, he says this. He says, in this, right, this inheritance, this truth that we just talked about that is preserved by the power of God, uh, you greatly, what? Rejoice. You greatly rejoice. Even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. So a generous gift should elicit certain responses, and one of those should be joy, right? You should be excited about a generous gift. However, some generous gifts um, come with necessary difficulties, 
right? If I gave you a Ferrari, I would think you would be excited about that, right? What do you mean, no? You can sell it. I don't know, but I, <laughs> they're like people are like, no, I don't want a five hundred thousand dollar car. Uh, but anyway, so if we if you get a Ferrari, uh, you might be excited about that, unless unless you're not. <laughs> you know, some people you could you could inherit ten million dollars, and some people would complain about having to pay the taxes on the ten million dollars, right? Uh, but most of us, you know, if we get something that we're joyful, we're, we're going to rejoice over it. But he says, uh, for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. You get that Ferrari, it's necessary, it's yours, but it's, if you want to get the full experience of the thing, it's necessary for you to put gas in it. And right now, that is a tr- serious trial, Right? That is a difficulty, but for, in order for you to get the full experience that is intended for this thing, you may have to experience some discomfort. And that word just really struck me, uh, necessary. But some trials are necessary. Because trials, they, they can deepen us. There's a word that uh, you'll hear in the church, and you may see in your Bible, um, this word tribulation, right? just means difficulty or trial, but, but it has a weird and interesting origin. In, in ancient Rome, uh, grain was threshed by, you know, you'd stir up the sheaves, and while you were doing that, you'd have uh, someone else ride over them in either a cart or a like a wagon type thing, and it had rollers on it. Uh, attached to the rollers, you'd have like sharp stones or maybe bits of iron. And as they would roll over it, it would grind the sheaves, and the bumps would separate the husks uh, from the grain. And it would get rid of all the unnecessary stuff revealing what you're really after, the treasure of the grain, right? Well, those... those uh, those cylinders with the bumps, and those were called a uh, tribulum. That's where we get the word tribulation. You know, no farmer ever went through that process just to inflict pain and destroy the sheaves. Right? It was to produce something better. And it was necessary to produce what, something better. So trials are, are maybe necessary he says, to grow your faith, right? To, um, to get you where you need to be. But they're also designed for something else, for another result. In verse 7 it says, So that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So our trials can bring glory, can can bring praise and glory to God. An example of that is uh, a quick one. Maybe you know the story of Joseph in the Old Testament. Joseph went through all kinds of stuff, right? He's sold into slavery by his own brothers and falsely accused of crimes he didn't commit, thrown into prison to await execution and 
eventually rises from the depths of you know that prison to being at the right hand of power. He's the second uh, in command in Egypt, and because of that, he was able to bring about the uh, the physical salvation of his entire uh, an entire nation because there was a famine, and he had been able to store up grain, and anyway, you may, may or may not know the story, but he went through some awful trials, but it brought about something that brought glory to God. But he says here that uh, the proof of your faith, that's a weird word because it's, it's the word that we use for testing uh, the, the purity of coins or gold. It's not just you, you prove the existence of your faith by going through a trial. It's, it helps you identify the purity, right? the, the quality of your faith. Kind of like with, uh, with alcohol, right? The higher the proof, the more alcohol is, is in that container. So trials can show you whether your faith is maybe a little shaky in some areas. Um, you know, maybe you get through uh, this trial for the first time, and it grows your faith a little. Because God allows us sometimes to face the heat in order to refine us. Because that's, there's this term we see in the Bible and elsewhere where we talk about the refiner's fire. Right? When, uh, when you melt down metals, uh, the metal separates the, you know, the gold from the dross, from all the things that aren't gold. And so sometimes you have to go through that process to see what in your life needs to be there and what things can go, what things matter and what things don't. But it, the hard thing to remember when you're going through times like that, when you're being tested by fire, is that God is a refiner, not an arsonist, right? He does, doesn't allow things in your life just to burn your life down. So anyway, that's where we left off last week. So we're going to pick up in verse 8. He says, And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. He says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. You know, when you, when you love someone, there's a few things that should happen. Because in our society, we've, we've really kind of gotten that word twisted, right? Love is, uh, you know, I love pizza and I love my wife. And we use the same word for those two, and they're different. Um, <laughs> I know, I mean, my wife and pizza, they're real close, but, but there are different ki- kinds of love. But when you love someone, uh, there's a few things that should happen, right? You should assume the best about them. In 1 Corinthians 13, we get this big long list of what love does. Love is patient and kind and not jealous and all that stuff. So if I love the Lord and I know that He knows I'm in this trial, what can I assume about Him? Because I'm assuming the best. I can assume that there's a reason, right? That there's something, that he's going to use something from this. That there's blessing in this pain somewhere. 
If you love someone, you should enjoy spending time with them. Right? So we spend time with, with Jesus by reading. By reading his word, we spend time with Jesus by, by praying. Right? So it's two-way communication. He speaks to us through his word, and we speak to him through our prayer. If you really love someone, you should, uh, you should feel more complete in their presence. That's part of what we're doing right now. Part of, part of why we gather together is, for one, to fellowship, right? To be around other people who, have, who also are, are trying to get through some things, but who are also, uh, you know, who also love Jesus. And to encourage one another to faith and good deeds, the Bible says. But we should want to spend time around those that we love. And we should also talk about them, right? If you really love someone, it shouldn't be top secret information. Right? I, you know, you, you, you want to brag on your kids. You hopefully say good things about your spouse. You know, we should, we should want to talk about someone that we love. We should also look for ways to demonstrate our love, right? Because love is not just an emotion, it's an action. Jesus said, gave us one simple thing to, uh, to tell us, or to inform us of how to demonstrate our love toward him. In John 14, verse 15, he says this. He says, if you love me, you will what? You will keep my commandments. All right? If you love me, then you'll care about the things I care about. Even when you don't understand it, if you love me, you'll, you'll care about what I care about. That's, but Peter, he raises a good question, though, right? He says, uh, he says though you have not seen him, you love him. So how do you, how do you love someone that you've never seen? You know, I've heard people say things like, uh, you know, well, if I could see Jesus for myself, then I would, then I would believe. And I want so bad to go, no. Uh, if you saw him for, for yourself, you would probably say crucify him because that's what most people did. Right? The people that saw, them, saw him for themselves yelled crucify him. But Hebrews 11 verse 1, it says this. It says that faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. There's a parable, there's a story in the New Testament you may be familiar with, maybe not, but uh, there's, there's a rich man and a poor man named Lazarus. And uh, they both die. And uh, Lazarus is a believer in the Messiah. He, he goes uh, to paradise, and the rich man uh, ends up in a place that you don't want to be in. And there's this moment where he's, he's calling across the, the gulf between the two places to Abraham. And first, you know, he asks for a, a drink of water because it's apparently not pleasant where he's at. But he also wants to go back, come back to, 
come back to life, come back to earth and mourn his family so that they don't end up where he is. He says, uh, you know, that if someone from the dead goes to them, obviously they're going to change. And in Luke 16, verse 31, it says this. It says, but he said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. See, Jesus makes it clear that someone could witness the resurrection, could see all the signs that you asked for to see, and still not believe. Because seeing is not believing. If seeing is not believing, then, then what's the real reason that why people won't believe in God, right? Because he says point blank, there are people who are going to see the resurrection and not believe. Well, Jesus tells us that uh, people don't believe simply because they don't want to. In John 7, uh, there's this interesting interaction where Jesus, he's with his brothers, and they don't even, they're kind of on the fence whether they believe, because Jesus hasn't died and been resurrected yet, right? And it's hard to believe your, your brother is God, you know. Um, but they urge him to show himself to the world. They're like, do, you know, do some tricks, do some signs, and, and, and then everybody's going to believe. And they, you know, they thought if everyone saw Jesus do his thing uh, and, you know, do, do some miracles, that everyone would believe and follow him. But in John 7, verse 7, he says, The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it, that its deeds are evil. In other words, I, I, the world hates me because I put a mirror up in front of it, and they see themselves, and they don't like what they see. So the real reason that people don't believe is that people don't want to. They don't want to hear the truth. And I've always said this, that I, I don't believe in atheists, you know, that uh, I believe everyone, uh, God wired everybody to know that there is a creator. It's just a matter of whether we want to be accountable to him or not. But even, okay, we'll say that there are atheists. I'll put it this way then. Uh, you can't be an atheist and hate God. Because how do you hate something that doesn't exist? You know, I, I see we've got a couple little ones in here, but well, there are some mythological figures that we, you know, use around certain holidays um, that I don't believe in because I know they're not real. But I also don't um, make sure I go on TV and rail against these people that they make cartoons about, you know, because I know they're not real. Anyway, Romans, Romans 10, verse 17 says this. It says that, that faith comes from hearing, right? And hearing by the word of Christ. So Peter, he had seen Jesus, right? He had walked with Jesus and talked with Jesus. He'd seen Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. He'd seen the risen Lord. He'd... But these people that he's addressing, they hadn't. They've only heard about him and still believe. They'd heard all about him and from the people who knew him. 
And it was enough to make them fall in love with Jesus. That's the same way it works for us. It is the same way it works today. So 1 Peter 1, verse 10 says, As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come uh, to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. All right, so he says these prophets, the salvation that you are enjoying, right, this, this treasure that you know you have, prophets for centuries prophesied of that very thing, of what was coming and what it has already come. Now there are hundreds and hundreds of prophecies in the Bible about all sorts of different things. But there's about 330 or so that are very specific to Jesus. I'm going to give you just a few. Uh, Isaiah 7.14 says that he would be born of a virgin. Micah 5.2, it says that he would be born in Bethlehem. That he was, uh, would come from the tribe of Judah. That's, that's all the way back in Genesis 49. Uh, that his ministry would begin in Galilee. That's in Isaiah 9, verse 1. That he would perform miracles, Isaiah 35, uh, verses 5 and 6. I'm, I'm leaning a little heavy on Isaiah because I've been preaching through that book recently. But, uh, that he would enter Jerusalem on a donkey is in Zechariah 9, verse 9. Uh, that he would be betrayed by a friend in the 41st Psalm, verse 9. That he'd be sold for 30 pieces of silver, Zechariah eleven twelve. That he would be wounded and bruised, Isaiah 53, 5. That his hands and feet would be pierced, Psalm 22, verse 16. That his side would be pierced, Zechariah 12, 10. That his bones would not be broken, Psalm 34, 10. That he would be executed between two criminals, Isaiah 53, 12. That his garments would be torn and people would cast lots for them, Psalm twenty-two eighteen. That he'd be buried in a rich man's tomb, Isaiah 53, 9, and he would rise from the dead, Psalm 16, verse 10. Okay. That, all that's going to be on the test here in a few minutes, so I hope you wrote it all down. There was a, back in the 60s, um, 1960s, there was a guy who wrote a little book. His name was... Uh, Dr. Peter Stoner, and he wrote this book called Science Speaks. He's a mathematician and college professor. It's a little bit controversial, but he went through the probability of uh, prophecies about Jesus being fulfilled. And maybe you've heard some of the illustrations that people have drawn from that, but one of them is that uh, in order for someone to fulfill eight of the Messianic prophecies, eight of the prophecies about Jesus... Um, would be 1 in 10 to the 17th power. Okay, that's 1 in 1 quadrillion, or roughly our national debt right now, I think. I don't know. It's, it's, uh, it's I think, 10 with 17 zeros after it, basically. Um, and, you know, he used the example of that would be like covering the entire state of Texas two feet deep in silver dollars and then walking out in a blindfold 
reaching down and picking out the one silver dollar, uh, you know, with your name on it or whatever. Um, I don't know how he did that math. I'm not a math uh, professor, but, you know, people will say, well, maybe they prearranged it. Oh, by the way, that was to fulfill eight prophecies, right? I just read you 16. The numbers get even more. It gets so unfathomable that he starts using, um, like, molecules and, you know, this one and this many quadrillion electrons or whatever. I don't know. It's, it makes your brain hurt. Uh, and there are roughly 330-some predictions uh, fulfilled by Jesus. But, but people will say, well, yeah, he knew the prophecies, and then so he, like, went around and made sure he fulfilled all of them. Yeah, that's, that'd be pretty, pretty tricky, especially because you can't uh, prearrange where you're going to be born or what bloodline you'll be born into. I know some of us probably wish we could have done that, right? But, but here's the thing. There's, there are many different holy writings in the world, purported holy writings. Uh, there's, but there's one thing that uh, the writings of Confucius and the Quran and Upanishads of the Hindus, uh, they all have this in common. Something that the Bible has that they do not. And that is predictive prophecy. The Bible is unique in that way. There are prophecies in the Old Testament fulfilled in the New. And there are also prophecies in the New that have been fulfilled since since the Bible was written. But the thing that's most interesting about it is that the prophets, they didn't even understand, most of the time, what they were writing. Right? This, this actually adds credence to what they wrote. They didn't, they, you, you, you see them oftentimes questioning God, saying, Lord, how long until this stuff happens? Or, or these visions trouble me, right? They, they just wrote down what God showed them. And they didn't always understand what it meant. So 1 Peter 1, verse 11, it says, that Seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. Right, so they were asking, you know, who am I writing about and when is this stuff going to happen? Because they didn't have the internet. Uh, they didn't even have, you know, we, we have the Old Testament and the New Testament. They didn't have, like, you know, before the New Testament came out, it wasn't just called the Testament. They didn't have, like, you know, half of the Bible all bound together. Uh, they lived, the prophets lived centuries apart and, and sometimes hundreds or even thousands of miles apart. So they might, you might live your whole life not even knowing that the book of Ezekiel existed. But your town synagogue had a copy of Isaiah. And that was basically all you had. Or you had the, you know, the first five books of the Bible in Nehemiah, like, like Kevin mentioned. So, you know, they didn't even have all of the prophecies to put together and, 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 and form a clear picture. And as far as I know, there are only really two people who have ever gotten the entire story straight. It happens in the New Testament. There's, after Jesus is uh, crucified and buried, 
some of his followers start to lose hope. And even after three days later, when there are reports are starting to trickle in that people are, are seeing Jesus, the risen Jesus, still, uh, some of the followers are they're not sure what to think. And there's a couple guys in particular that are like, this is crazy. Uh, we're going to go home. And they set out for their village, uh, Emmaus. And as they're walking along, uh, it turns out that the risen Lord, that the resurrected Jesus, uh, joins them. And for whatever reason, they, they don't initially recognize him. I, mean, I don't know if uh, he's wearing sunglasses or, you know, or you're also you don't expect to see a dead guy walking, you know, down the street. I don't know what happened, but they didn't initially recognize him. And, and he says, well, you guys seem down. What's going on? And, and they said, well, haven't you heard what's been happening in Jerusalem? We had this guy that we thought was the Messiah, that we thought was the, the prophesied king, but they've killed him. And so in Luke 24... Verse 25 says, And he said to them, O foolish men, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer, uh, to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then, beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. What a Bible study. Like Jesus literally went through the whole Bible and went, and this one's about me, and that one's about me, and here's how I fulfilled this one, right? He explains the whole thing. So as far as I know, they're the only two guys that actually had all of it explained to them and, and understood all of it. And as much as I envy those two, because I, I, man, I wish I knew it all, you know? I sometimes act like I do, but I don't, you know? I tell my kids that I know everything, and I just can't remember it all at once, but... Um, but even though I envy those two guys, Jesus says that the prophets who wrote all this stuff down, they envy you. In Matthew 13, verse 17, he says, For truly I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. The best way I can describe this is that the prophets in the Old Testament, they saw the future as best they could. And they could see, in the distance, they could see two mountains. They could see the mountain the mount of Mount Calvary, right, where the crucifixion happens. I, Isaiah made it pretty clear that the king is coming and he's going to suffer. He's going to die. And they could see the Mount of Olives where Jesus is supposed to return. Right? They could see from the past looking into the future, they could see that he would come and die and that he would be resurrected and come again. But as far as the distance between those two mountains, they had no idea. And that's the valley that we live in. You know, what they couldn't see from their perspective was that valley between the two mountains, um, that valley that's, you know, 2,000 years or so 
They couldn't see it, but they knew it was there. In 1 Peter 1, verse 12, it says, It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. And these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. See, what we enjoy, this, this uh, salvation, this position, is something that people looked forward to uh, for centuries. And we shouldn't take that for granted. So even though uh, we're in the valley, the prophets would have given anything to be where we are. And it says even that the angels are, they're just baffled by it. Right? They don't understand this at all. Because they wonder, how can, how can they not believe? You know, angels were not made in the image of God. Only, only you were. Only you have uh, that breath of life that makes us unique out of all creations. And the angels are just totally confused. For one, why does God love them so much? And two, why don't they love him back? They don't understand. So we're running a little bit long. Here's, here's our quick takeaway. We're going to get into more stuff next week. But we're in that valley. We're in that space between the two mountaintops, right? Lift your eyes. You know, your joy is not supposed to be de- dependent on your circumstances. And your worth is not determined by people's opinions of you. So you may be going through it right now, you know. Uh, look for the opportunity in it. How can I grow from this? Uh, maybe there's some maybe there's some wisdom here. Maybe maybe I won't get the answer to the to my questions until I'm in heaven, but maybe I just need to trust you, God, even when I don't understand. Maybe that's the lesson. But Peter, he's right from the get-go making it clear there is suffering, but there's glory to come. And between suffering and glory is the valley that we spend most of our time in. And it might take a week or a month or a lifetime, but don't let this valley rob you of the joy uh, that Jesus has for you. Remember what's waiting, right? Keep your eyes on the prize. And the last thing we'll, we'll close with this is that I just, we're going to go back to the first verse we read because this treasure that we have, this inheritance, Uh, requires one thing. 1 Peter 1, verse 3. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be, what? Born again again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You had no control over where and when you were born. But you can absolutely choose to trust Jesus and be born again. Let me pray for you. Lord, we thank you so much that uh, you're still changing hearts and lives all this, all this time later. We thank you that uh, your plan for us has not changed. That if we believe you are who you say you are and you can do what you say you can do, that, you get, that we have eternal life. But Lord, we also know that you came that we would have life and have it abundantly. Some of us are going through dark, dark valleys right now. Some of us aren't experiencing big trials, but we're still living in that valley between 
your coming and your return. And so Lord, we just pray that you would help us to keep our eyes on the prize, keep our eyes on what is to come. And Lord, that we would live accordingly as one who loves you. And we pray for your blessing on the hearts and lives of your people. And we pray you come and come quickly. Everyone said, amen. All right, ready? Break. Break.